Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Love Talk Radio. stopped at the traffic light just before entering my neighborhood, and I was thinking to myself just how much better my commute was than it was the day before. Earlier that week, I took my usual shortcut behind the mayor's office, and my wife and I saw Mayor Adrian Fenty in his new smart car. He waved to my wife and I, but I couldn't get my camera out fast enough, and I missed a great photo opportunity. So on Thursday, being better prepared, I tried again. But the weather was bad, and of course, so was the traffic. And I got stuck behind the mayor's office for over 20 minutes. When I got home, I was so beat, I went straight to my office and got myself a 40-minute acupressure infrared heat massage. And that brought me back to life. 
But today, traffic was a breeze. At the traffic light, I happened to look over to the car next to mine, and I saw a beautiful three-year-old little girl staring out of the window from her car seat in a daze. I smiled as I thought about how wonderfully simple our lives were back then when we were children. Then she noticed me, and she smiled back, and I looked away to see if the light had changed, and when I looked back again, I smiled and saw her looking at me, and then she started laughing hysterically, only the way a three-year-old could. So I laughed, and she laughed, and the light turned green, and I waved goodbye and proceeded home. As I was driving, I thought to myself, if that would have occurred yesterday, even after my 90 minutes in traffic, that would have been all I needed to snap me back to life. A three-year-old smile versus my expensive massage bed. The kid wins every time. On the drive through my neighborhood, I had an epiphany. How many things have I placed in my life to make up for not taking the time to really enjoy all the simple things life has to offer? Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Many of us have forgotten how to enjoy and appreciate the little things or even the small steps of our accomplishments or the little likes in our relationships or the small things that bring us joy in the pursuit of things that would bring us greater happiness. We have become impatient and always looking ahead to the thing that we perceive to be the source of our happiness. Webster's defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Look, be careful in life that you do not lose your joy. Research shows that if you do, loss of good health is not far behind. Take time out to enjoy the little things in life. Rejoice in reliving life's joys through sharing them often with others. And take a moment to relax in your moment of peace through your joy instead of the empty pursuit of pleasure. If you ever lose sight of life's joy, take every step in your power to reclaim it as soon as possible. Your first step to reclaim true joy in life is just to look to God. He's always willing to show us His glory to all who are willing to seek. Just take a moment and look around you, and you will see his joy everywhere. But if you still need a starting point, look in the eyes of a child. The younger, the better. There you will find true joy, or in other words, joy and a measure of truth. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at amensureoftruth at gmail.com. Look, we've got a great show for you today. 
Since 1965, White House fellowships have offered a select group of outstanding people a year-long opportunity to participate in government at the highest levels. More than 600 alumni of these programs have gone on to become leaders in all fields of endeavor, fulfilling the fellowship's mission to encourage active citizenship and service to the nation. Tonight, we bring you one of those fellows, Erica Jeffries. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's glad, I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for taking time out. You know, this is a very, very prestigious um, fellowship. This position in itself not only um, is quite an honor because so few are selected, but um, it really paves the way for your future. Well, I'm really excited about this opportunity. I, I don't actually begin the opportunity until the end of August, but I'm going to be in the class of 2010-2011. So I'm really, I've heard great things about it. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. So I'm definitely looking forward to the opportunities that it will present. Now, most of us know nothing about this White House Fellowship. And um, so how did you first hear about it? And tell us a little bit about the path that brought you to actually applying for it. Well, I um, I actually attended my undergraduate, um, was at the United States Military Academy at West Point. And while I was there, one of my professors was a former White House fellow, and he was the first person to actually introduce me to the program. At that time, obviously, being a uh, an undergraduate student, I was much too junior to even think about applying, but it was kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And later, one of my mentors, uh, a guy named Colonel Barry Price, uh, was a member of the White House Fellowship Program class of 2000, and um, he also introduced me to the program, reintroduced me to it. And... I actually thought about applying several years ago and, and brought it up to Colonel Price and my other mentor, a guy named Colonel Rob Gordon, and both said, oh, you're not quite ready yet. So I waited a little while. I got my graduate degree. I got a few more years of work experience under my belt, and, and then I decided this year that I would pursue and um, really undertake the application, which was an experience in and, in and of itself. But fortunately, and really by the grace of God, I'm, I'm – very proud to say that I'll be in the next class, so I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, that's really awesome. Now, now tell us about this stringent process that actually you would have to go through in order to be able to um, become a White House Fellow. Well, um, the application process actually takes about six months. The I started it, well, you can start a little bit sooner than January 1st, but I started January 1st, um, and that's kind of when the website opens for the next class to start applying and your first application is due February 1st. It, it, I think I had about six essays, which were um, very thought-provoking. It really forced you to think about things that most people, I don't think, take the time to think about, like what are your life's goals and where do you see yourself in 20 years and what is your greatest accomplishment, things like that, and really <laughs> forcing myself to think about those answers and, and then to be concise enough to write my life's ambitions in 300 words. Um, it was it was very challenging. So submitted the application on the 1st of February, and then somewhere around uh, late March, I guess, mid-March, I was um, notified that I was a regional finalist. And the regional finals took the applicant pool from about 1,200 down to 120. Wow. Yeah, so there are 10 regions around the country, and I was actually sent to Denver to do my regional panel interviews, which I did over a day and a half in Denver. 
uh, with some prominent leaders in the local community in, in Denver, Colorado. And then I guess around the beginning of May, I was notified that I made the national finals, which took the 120 down to about 30, 30 people. So um, right at the, I guess, mid-June, the 10th through the 13th of June, we had a another interview weekend with the President's Commission on White House Fellows, which is um, their 30 people that President Obama has has um, appointed to serve on his commission for the White House Fellowship Program. And they are um, people like uh, General Wesley Clark, General Fig Newton, um, Reverend Dr. Cynthia Hale, um, very prominent, uh, Mr. Tom Brokaw, Senator Tom Daschle. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 30, 30 of them, um, all very um, experienced and, and famous, some of them, and renowned for their work experience and community service and public service. And so we interviewed over the course of two and a half days, and on June 22nd they announced the, the class of 13. So I was just ecstatic and um, have been ever since. <laughs> wow, from 1,200 to just 13. Wow, that that is a select group. You know, I chuckled a little earlier because some of the things that you said you wrote your essays on were some of the questions I had for you as well. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so, then I'm ready to go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, um, be, because this is such a prestigious um, honor, and, uh, you know, I'm sure you, you realize just how much this could possibly do for your career, uh, even though you haven't started yet. Have you actually thought about um, just some of the doors that might open or just even in dreaming thought about just how much further you can go now adding this to your um, repertoire? I've thought a little bit about it, but really um, I I don't want to miss this experience by looking too far down the line. Right. I, I just really want to enjoy this for, for what it is for right now. And I, I know that, you know, so many people have said this is something that will really change your life, change your career, and, and I anticipate that and I really look forward to that. But at the same time, I want to be, for once, I want to kind of be in the moment and just enjoy everything that's about to happen. I mean, just thinking about standing in the Oval Office is like, Wow! Yeah. I, I just getting past that, you know. I, I'm, I much less the end of the in the end of the program. I'm thinking about the beginning of it. So I'm I'm really right. I, I'm just you know looking forward to whatever God has for me on the other side of it. But for right now, I'm just going to enjoy this. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Take it a day at a time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You might you might have to just keep a diary of everything that goes on. <laughs> I've thought about that. I really right. I'm, I'm thinking of doing that because I certainly want to remember this forever. I'll just put a bug in your ear. It would make a great book. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the experiences, yes, it could. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's going to be very good. You know, um, things are going very well for you, and there's no reason to think that they won't continue. Um, and um, the thing is, is um, you, you, we talked about this a little earlier, that you are giving up your position um, at your current job. And tell us a little bit about what you were doing at the time of your application and um, – where you plan to go thereafter? Um, I currently work for Booz Allen Hamilton, and I'm a defense consultant there. I focus primarily on national security policy and military defense policy. Um, so that's that's what I've been doing. I've been at Booz for uh, it's almost seven years, which is kind of hard to believe. 
mm-hmm. and I've been doing that most of the time. Um, it's taken me a lot of different places. I spent some time in Germany supporting a military unit there. Um, I spent some time in the Pentagon supporting um, Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy. Um, so I spent some time in Iraq um, supporting really? the Coalition Provisional Authority there. So it's it's been a wonderful opportunity working at Booz Allen. So I, I do have some sadness in leaving. There's some excellent people that work there. I have a wonderful team, and I've been really fortunate to have had the experience to work at that company as well. So it's kind of like had to be a once-in-a-lifetime dream-come-true thing to take me away. So looking forward to next <laughs> step, but um, definitely have enjoyed my time at Booz Allen. Wow, that's awesome. And, um, well, tell us a little bit about your experience in Iraq. Um, I went to Iraq the end of 2003 and stayed until um, a couple months into 2004. And I was in the Army before I actually joined Booz Allen, so I was in the military for five years um, as an aviation officer and was medically retired from the military and went to Booz Allen and was kind of looking for an opportunity to get into the fight, so to speak, and um, Booz Allen needed someone to go to Iraq to basically, uh, we had developed a database to track the construction pro- uh, construction projects going on around the country. So my job was to basically present it to military commanders on the ground in Baghdad and throughout the country and get them basically to get all in the same system of reporting. Um, it was not so well received, but um, it was a, it was a great experience going over there. I learned a tremendous amount in a short period of time. Um, so I went there by myself because it was over Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's holidays, so no one really wanted to go. So that was uh, that was my opportunity to get into the fight. Wow. So, <laughs> not really, but um, to a degree. Now, so um, it sounds like there was a little change management going on in there as well. Um. With this a little new bit, idea. a little bit, yeah. That was, and that was the the commander's response to me was, "You're about ten months too late with this with this database." Um, wow. Because getting there when I did, um, it was the, the end of 2003, so they'd already been in country for about eight or nine months, and they were already doing their own thing. And the problem was everybody had their own kind of reporting system, and so at that time, uh, Ambassador Bremer was hoping for something that would put everybody on the same page, and so. We developed a database, but unfortunately, um, it didn't really take off the way we had hoped. But, but it was a great experience, nonetheless. Absolutely, and it, and it put you in a situation where you really had to prove yourself and it had to stand your ground and um, your ideas and what you believed in. Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. because military commanders do not hold back <laughs> with what they're thinking. Right. Especially not to the civilian contractor. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Been there, done that. But, well, not at that level, but, yeah, similar situations. But, um, so let's let's hear it, Erica. Where do you see yourself in five years? I mean, good grief. It seems like the opportunities are endless, but is there anything out there that you might be focused on? You know, I've, I really have missed being in public service, I've missed the opportunity of being able to do work that you actually see the benefit happening before your eyes. Um, we do a lot of research and writing, um, but which I think is helpful for a lot of different reasons, but I really am looking forward to doing something that puts me in the field, so to speak, that gets me out from behind the, 
desk in the wonderfully air-conditioned office and puts me in the field really helping people and, and seeing a change happen. A change mm. occur. There's so much that needs to be done, and I really want to be a part of positive change in some way or another. I haven't narrowed my focus to exactly where I want to uh, focus my energies yet, but there are. I definitely know I want to be where the rubber is meeting the road. I know kind of from experience of being in the military, seeing how policy comes down to the tactical level of where soldiers are actually working. But um, And I've also been at the level where policy is being made and written and drafted. And there's a huge disconnect between the two. And so I'd like to be back, I think, take my perspective of being on the, the higher end of uh, the creation of policy to back down to the level of where it's actually implemented and seeing if I can do something to maybe close that gap. Mm. Wow. Well, you know, we, we definitely need leaders, and we definitely need leaders that are focused on service and are also willing to um, do the work that it takes. And um, I see um, a, a very interesting road that you've traveled and um, a more prosperous one ahead of you, but it looks like you really want to make an impact, and I really just commend you for that because you seem to be really focused on one thing is what I'm hearing from you, and that's service. And uh, I think that's really commendable. Well, thanks, and I, I think it's so important. I think, um, and not to necessarily plug the Obama administration per se, but I think that's one great thing that uh, President Obama is really trying to get America to focus on, and that is community service and to really – even in a small way to get into your own community and do something that makes a difference, whether it's, you know, just a litter cleanup around your neighborhood or, you know, helping out at a at a shelter or helping out in an after-school program or whatever it is, just to kind of give back. We have been given so much in this country, and it's just such a privilege to give back. And it's funny because I think when I volunteer to do things, I get more out of it <laughs> maybe than, you know, than the people that I'm helping. You just feel... Like you're doing something that's really rewarding, and right. definitely, I would like to focus more on that aspect of of my life, doing more public service. Yeah, yeah, it is very rewarding. Um, my my particular focus is I love children, <laughs> and I love any organization that has something to do with kids. But I spread it out a little bit as well. But um, yeah, I th I just have this concept that if we start without children, we can't go wrong because not only will they expand upon this and um, reach out to others and share the same values that we put into them, but they are our future as well. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Start with them. 20 years from now, we'll have a whole generation of civic-minded people, you know, kind of passing that on to their children. We could change the world that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, now give us a little bit of uh, information, too, about um, – you went to school. Was it here? No, I went to um, I went to West Point, right? The United States Military Academy in uh, New York. Yes, absolutely. And tell us a little bit about um, your activities there, because that's an interesting choice. Not many women, generally speaking, you hear them talk about going to a military academy. Though I know of a few have gone. So, what drove you in that direction? Uh, really, I was I wasn't really exposed to the military at all. I was drawn to West Point because I was uh, very close to the minister of my church as, when I was in, coming up in high school, and she was actually invited to speak at the cadet chapel at West Point. Her son was a cadet at that time, and she went to 
to the cadet chapel and spoke, and she invited me along with her on that trip. And I came back, my mom says I came back hypnotized, and I just really, really? Was, was mesmerized by the place. I was so intrigued by this concept of leadership, and um, I had been a student leader in high school, but um, I just really, I did. I came back really wanting to be an officer in the United States Army, and I really wanted to lead soldiers, and I, I really wanted to be in a place where I could get an outstanding education that my mother would not have to pay for. And that meant a huge amount to me, too, because I had gone to a private school um, on, a, on a very good scholarship, but still it was a sacrifice for my mom to have to send me to a private school. And I appreciated that, and that was, to me, West Point seemed like the ideal way to repay her for her sacrifice is to go to college and, and go for free. Um, and so I did, and I, I do not regret it. I had a very interesting time, definitely had ups and downs while I was there, but um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I would maybe do it better <laughs> than I did it the first time, <laughs> do a lot of things differently, but um, I would definitely go back, and, and um, if I had to make that choice again, I would. To give you a little bit back, it's a four-year um, college. It's an engineering school. It's um, You spend your four years there, and you graduate, and you are commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army, and you have a commitment to serve um, for five years or longer. Um, I actually had a commitment of seven years because I chose the branch of aviation, which included flight school and a lot more went into it, so I had a, a longer commitment. Um, oh, do you fly? I did fly. I, I was a helicopter pilot. I flew Black Hawk helicopters. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I am so impressed now. <laughs> really? Okay. I fly a desk now, Michael. I don't fly anything else. Wow. I, I, I love helicopters. I have an indoor helicopter I fly. I mean, we just went somewhere <laughs> else. That. I, we'll talk later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. And the Blackhawks, I see them. See, I drive right past the Pentagon on my way to work. Oh, I know. It just, it, uh -huh. I just get sad every time I see them flying over. I <laughs> get very nostalgic. Yeah. And these guys aren't just flying. I mean, they're really flying them. They're, they're, oh, they're moving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm trying to refocus now. Okay. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about um, what leadership means to you. Well, I feel like I'm back in my, my panel interviews. This is tough. Um, you know, leadership really, it, it means a lot to me. I, I think um, it's something that's a really big part of my character, I think. Um, I think it's something that not everybody is born with. I do think that some people are born with it. I think some people learn it, and I think some people just are better at following. Um, but really, the the key to being a good leader is to be is being a good follower. Um, and I think you know you'll read a hundred different leadership books that'll tell you different things. But for me, I think to be a good leader, you have to understand the people that you're leading. You have to be um, receptive to to their you know, what they have to say and to their thoughts and to their emotions. And um, and really you have to, I mean, people always say you have to be in touch with your people or your constituency or whatever the case may be. Um, and it is and it is that, but it's it's really kind of having a, a heart of, of the people that you are, are leading. Um, and when they know that you are willing to risk your life for them or willing to put yourself at risk, whether it's, you know, it doesn't have to be a military-type leadership situation, but... If they know that you are willing to 
sacrifice for them, then they will sacrifice for you. And I think that's that sort of relationship is not something that you find in a lot of places. Um, and I think it's it's very special. And um, I think the the stronger the leader, obviously the the more solid and more productive the organization. So that's that's really what I strive to be. Um, I don't have a whole lot of leadership in my current position as a consultant, but but even in small teams, I mean, it doesn't have to be a large group. Mm-hmm. Even in you know, two in a two-person team, there's leadership involved. So it's it's definitely something that I I'm continue to strive to cultivate. Wow, well, you're definitely in the right place now. Um, I'm I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I really that's really why I'm excited because just this exposure to to this awesome leadership of our country it's it's going to be I mean and not all leaders are great leaders so you can certainly learn things from poor leaders and Mm. I think I'm you know either way I'm going to have an excellent opportunity to learn a lot about leadership wow that's just great and um we're going to have you um hang in there and um just speaking of leaders and leadership um Next up, we'll have on the Honorable Sharon Pratt, um, former mayor of Washington, D.C., and um, the founder and manager of Pratt Consulting. Um, we'll be back with her, hopefully, right after this. We hope to hear from her right around 7.30 or so. So we'll just take a break, and if you could hang in there with us, Erica, we'll be right back. Okay, I will. Kurt Mansell is a man determined to change the face of the world by representing God's truth by example. His perception and insight of the Word of God comes across with eye-opening illumination of the Scriptures. His approach to ministry is that of a servant ordained to do what the Lord has revealed. See what diligence and dedication to the Word has enabled him to discover concerning the riches God's kingdom makes available to us all. The Acceptable Spiritual Mind by Kurt Mansell. Available at Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I just wanted to let you know that during the next few months, Healthy Kinder Incorporated will be running its Give 5 campaign to raise money for childhood obesity prevention programs throughout the metropolitan area. Please visit the Give 5 campaign page on the website today at healthykinderkids.org to learn more about how you can make a significant difference in the lives of our children. Please share this message with your friends and family members to support this very important and worthy cause. Even their children can benefit from the Healthy Kinder programs. We encourage you to contact your congressperson and state representatives and ask them to support President Obama's health care reform plan. Prevention is key to the survival of our future generation. And thank you for taking time out of your busy day for a measure of truth. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I want to take a moment to talk to you about a heinous crime against humanity that plagues our nation and, yes, believe it or not, communities just like yours. Here's something you can do today to lend your support in the fight against human trafficking, also known as modern slavery. For example, Tanya was only 11 when she was forced to use her body for her own survival and the perverse desires of others. Now 18, Tanya knows no other life. She can't even remember when she was able to choose how she wanted to dress. Tanya dreams of being a teacher one day. And with the help of Bridge to Freedom programs and your support, 
they can empower her and others like her to move from surviving to thriving. You can make a huge difference in the life of a survivor this year through your support and donations to Bridge to Freedom Foundation. Bridge to Freedom is a nonprofit organization that provides aid to survivors of slavery who now live in the U.S., such as former child soldiers and victims of sex trafficking and forced labor. The cornerstone of Bridge to Freedom's work is personal and professional development to help survivors adapt and thrive in their new lives and communities and find work to support themselves. The Bridge to Freedom Foundation needs your support to help people just like Tanya. They need your urgent action to ensure that they can continue to provide clothing and health and beauty services to these survivors. These are not only important for rebuilding self-esteem, but are crucial to finding employment. They're also in great need of storage containers and clothing racks to organize and store donations. While donations of needed items are vital, one sure thing that will help to stop the spread of this injustice and prevent it from thriving undetected is educating yourselves about human trafficking or slavery and knowing the signs and the proper authorities to contact if you become aware of a victim in crisis. Find out more at bridgetofreedomfoundation.org or if you have a reason to suspect that someone may be a victim of human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline on 1-888-373-7888. Multilingual call specialists are on standby 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All calls are confidential. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. And look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, up next, we're going to have the Honorable Sharon Pratt, former mayor of Washington, D.C., and the founder and manager of Pratt Consulting Company, a company that brings strategic consulting support to government, commercial, and nonprofit clients. But today, we're going to talk with her about her role with the Opportunity Funding Corporation. In her interest in working with a select group of leaders in the mortgage and financial industry to create a white paper series intended to help stabilize home ownership. Sharon Pratt, welcome to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be a part of it. Well, we're glad to have you on. And um, we are really curious about this Opportunity Funding Corporation. What is this all about? Well, you know, Opportunity Funding Corporation was started right as a part of the civil rights movement uh, during when the Republicans came into office during President Nixon's years. It was the no focus was on building capitalism in communities of color, uh, and so we've been around 40 years. Uh, we've done a lot of things with helping black banks and Hispanic uh, businesses over these 40 years, including providing the early investment dollars for BET and Radio One. Wow. Wow. I had no idea you guys had been around for so long. Yeah. Wow. And so you guys have um, a symposium coming up very soon to discuss some issues that are plaguing Americans all over the country. And tell us about that. 
Well, in that the focus of OFC is on wealth creation in communities of color, uh, we uh, have a white paper series that we call it around economic stabilization. It's really addressing this foreclosure crisis, I mean, epidemic crisis, hmm. uh, that is has wiped out the net worth of African Americans and Hispanic Americans, the net worth that we'd obtained over the last 25 years. And so we want to look at the why this happened, what are the implications of it, what are the implications of it in terms of getting an education, what are the implications of it in having a line of credit if you want to start a business, when you wipe out that kind of collateral in these communities. Right, right. Now, um, we, we've known for quite some time that um, African Americans, of course, have um, suffered from this more than most, but you're saying Hispanic, Hispanics as well have also had a, um, a, a bigger hit by this um, crisis. That is correct. Uh, African Americans, Hispanic Americans have been particularly hard hit by this crisis, although all Americans have been hard hit. Mm -hmm. But the net worth that we had, African Americans, were able to obtain over the last 25 years, we now uh, really have lost that in, in a significant way. For Hispanic Americans, it means that their net worth that they've been able to obtain has stalled. But for African Americans, it's been an actual real net loss as mm -hmm. a result of this foreclosure crisis. So it was the one way most, it's the one way most Americans have of really achieving, a, you know, gaining a, a wealth in this country, really achieving uh, having a real significant asset. And um, most Americans, um, or most of my listeners anyway, they're not really familiar with white papers and basically how they work and how they're developed and what their purpose is. Could you explain that a little? Sure. Uh, the, the whole notion here is to pull together some of the best and brightest minds in this space whether they are leading members of the House Financial Services Committee, and that, quite naturally we are looking to the leadership of people like, you know, Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Congressman Meeks and others, um, as well as leaders within the not-for-profit community, uh, people such as Julia Gordon with the Center for Responsible Lending and people such as uh, um, uh, Jim Carr with NCRC, to put those folks together and identify the nature of the problem and come together with a policy document in October of this year that recommends, you know, ways we can address this, how we can move forward post-crisis and even during the crisis in a way that helps African American and Hispanic Americans uh, achieve a real wealth in this country. Right. And um, so the, the main goal is to actually address some of um, some new programs and maybe some of the programs that are out there that just didn't work for us. Address those, that's correct, to address the programs that have not worked, but also to highlight the programs that do work. There mm -hmm. are groups, the Urban League, La Raza, uh, Hope Now, others have effective programs. Why are we not providing more funding for those programs that have more effectively come up with loan modifications uh, to order, in order to prevent people from losing their homes? Why is it that banks are not uh, feel the incentive that are there. Why don't they not feel incentivized, the new word <laughs> that they use today, incentivized right. to really come up with loan modifications. Everybody conceivably loses if there's a foreclosure. Why haven't banks been able to be more forthcoming in terms of loan modifications? What are the policies that government could really uh, revamp 
to to provide the incentives to to prevent this crisis from you know es- continuing. Uh, so we look at both what programs are working, what programs are not working, and what programs can work, uh, particularly even beyond the crisis. Well, um, and aren't there some special interests involved as well that that are probably slowing these things down in the in the house? Well, without a doubt, there are people. There are special interests who just say, "Okay, it, we, we're still ahead if you let people go ahead and go into foreclosure." So that means we've got to look at what our policies are. Why are we not doing more to encourage modifications of these loans? Secondly, mm-hmm. there's now even a debate going on as to whether everybody really should own a home. There's even a you know at one time it wasn't mm-hmm. even a debatable point. Everybody they felt should be encouraged to own a home. Right. Now they're saying well some people just aren't really qualified. Do not will never have the economic profile to really qualify for home ownership. Well, one of the things we want to look at is, by and large, the people who got these subprime instruments were not people who couldn't have qualified for traditional mortgages, but people just really preyed on them uh, mm-hmm. to their disadvantage because mm-hmm. it was in the economic interest of people to get come up with these subprime mortgages, so, so uh, subprime instruments. So we want to look at all of that, try to rebut some of the uh, assumptions that are out there, some of the uh, stereotypes that are out there, and talk about how do we move forward in a way that's effective. Now, um, being a former mayor, um, how does your role help um, some of these other interested parties to help navigate this process to trying to, to effectively make a change? Well, I think the way that having been in public office and having had de- dealing with these not, nothing quite as challenging as this in terms of the housing market, but dealing with issues where the rubber hits the road kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know, I think uh, you have a sense of how to pull together the, the brightest folks, pull together these thought leaders, and try to get them all to close ranks around five, let's say, recommendations that people can embrace and try to get the Congress to pay attention, because I think the Congress is eager for effective solutions, and then help all of them to get the administration to realize these are the five kind of uh, ideas we have, that all of the stakeholders from the African-American community, from the Hispanic-American community, uh, from from, you know Congress and elsewhere, these are the five recommendations that we advance and we think could make a difference both in trying to stem the tide of foreclosures so not, not so many millions of Americans lose their homes, but also how we can, moving forward post-crisis, continue to uh, uh, allow African Americans and Hispanic Americans achieve any, uh, some kind of wealth in this country. Yes, yes. And, and, and give us some details about the location and the date of the symposium that you guys are putting together where this white paper will be developed. Well, uh, the event will be uh, uh, on July 27th, uh, and it will be uh, in the House Rayburn Building. Uh, and, um, you know, it'll be from 9 o'clock uh, to 5, 530. 9 o'clock to 5.30? 5.30. Um, on, July? on July 27th. Okay, very good. And, um, as and, and also about- people can uh, uh, contact our offices at 202-204-2580 to get further information if they have an interest uh, in participating. 
Excellent. Excellent. And um, also, um, do you have information? I noticed that you have a Facebook as well. Right. Uh, and uh, that Facebook uh, will have additional information on everything regarding the event. And is it is it open so that everyone can see it, or do you have to be one of your friends? No, everybody can see it. Excellent. It's open for anyone. For Opportunity Funding Corporation, uh, and uh, or, or you know, you can just uh, it's accessible to anyone. Wow! So if you're in the the DC area, um, this yeah, is we encourage something. people to come up there. It's open to all who have an interest, uh, and as I say, it's uh, nine o'clock to five thirty, and you can call the office to get any additional information. Well, at this time, I just wanted to um, bring back on. Um, the first guest that we had on the show today was one of our newest White House fellows, Erica Jeffries. Say hello Good. to Sharon Pratt. Hi, Sharon. It's uh, very nice to finally meet you. I've heard so much about you and read about your, your experience. So hopefully we'll meet one day in person. Well, I look forward to it. Good for you. Thank for you. you being a White House fellow. <laughs> Is that right? Thank you. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's terrific. Thanks so much. And um, also... Um, is there some other information, some other parties that are involved or maybe associations, too, that maybe we can put out there for people to gather more information and maybe even try to um, assist in this um, this venture? Well, we have, uh, let's see, we have uh, the Urban League. Mark Morial will be taught, will speaking that morning, and uh, Cy Richardson from the Urban League, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. They're a part of it with Dr. Wilhelmina Lee. La Raza is a part of it. We're hoping Janet Marguia would join us, the head of uh, La Raza, along with Lotaro Diaz, who will be participating in a panel. Um, Avis uh, Jones DeWeaver uh, will be a... DeWeaver, yes. Yeah, DeWeaver, who is just terrific. She really knows the profile of mm -hmm. women of color who've been disproportionately mm -hmm. impacted by this crisis, um, as well as Julia Gordon, as I said, with the Center for Responsible Lending, um, as well as Jim Carr with NCRC. Uh, Yale School of Management is one of our partners. Howard University uh, is one of our strategic partners. Um, so we have any number of, uh, of organizations that are, you know, uh, helping us populate these panels and helping us think through these issues. And, um, and uh, oh, go right ahead. No, I said, and the real challenge is, You've got great minds who are focused on this, but the, our goal as at OFC is, is to try to convene and aggregate these great minds into one place, have them sort of drill down on the issues at, at the same time, and then come out of it with a, with a collaborative commitment for four or five what I call asks, uh, recommendations in terms of moving it forward. You know, try try to get that kind of buy-in. Try to get that agreement around the four or five recommendations that you think can make a big difference. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, it, it sounds like you guys have all the key players together. And, and um, who's going to facilitate all this? Well, OSC plays as the facilitator, but we get different people to sort of to anchor each of the panels mm. uh, uh, so that we, you know, maximize... Uh, of the thinking from each of the panels, and then we will, as a result of this July 27th meeting, that's just a public conversation. That will result in working committees 
mm-hmm. that will result in the white paper, which will be presented no later than October 19th of this year. Okay, great. So and we will be working, uh, Yale School of Management uh, will be working with uh, OFC along with uh, Howard to build that white paper uh, so that when we publish it in, in, in October of 2010. And, and where will that be published? At the same website? Well, not just at the website. We will also have a, a public event uh, where we will convene these thought leaders again uh, and present what we think are the agreed-upon recommendations of all of these stakeholders. And we will have run it past uh, members of Congress, uh, as well as hopefully members of the administration, um, as well as the banking community. Fannie Mae is a, a lead sponsor in this. We're going to engage Freddie Mac, you know, all of the bankers who are in this space, uh, with the hope that what comes out of it is some agreement around how to make a difference, how to mitigate the crisis, how to stem the tide of foreclosures, how to deploy resources to those organizations that are effectively addressing this issue, whether it be Urban League, La Raza, Hope Now, Neighbor, Neighbor Works, whatever it is, as well as what are the recommendations going forward. How do you build wealth in this country? It's a critical issue. You've got to have assets to navigate the 21st century economy. You, mm-hmm. In this 21st century economy, you've got to have an education, which means you have to have an asset some type of collateral to get to, le- to, to get the loan to get an education. Or, and you need, uh, by and large, most people will be- become self-employed, entrepreneurs. You've got to have assets to get a line of credit, uh, you know, as a business person. Mm-hmm. And, and so the implications of, you know, a huge slice of our community losing these assets, the right. implications are far greater than just shelter. Shelter mm-hmm. as critical as it is, mm-hmm. it is the loss of a major tool that you need to navigate a 21st century economy. And mm-hmm. we're asking everyone to look at that and mm-hmm. understand that and recognize that we as a nation probably need to have policies that ensure that people have a legitimate access to obtaining these kinds of assets, to building that kind of net worth. Uh, also joining us will be uh, Lisa Menza from the Aspen Institute, who and the Aspen Institute has a big initiative around building wealth through individual development accounts, IDAs, um, uh, and, and that's another strategy that can be advanced. And there are policies that can be fashioned that will promote the building of wealth that way as well. Right, right. And, and the way you've just laid it out, I mean, we can clearly see from what you just said that our economy will never recover until this is fixed. Our economy will never recover until this is fixed. That is absolutely right. And you cannot have these many people, the, the, this significant piece of the population, so adversely impacted and expect the economy to be able to move forward in an effective way. Uh, so for those who want to debate whether individuals should or should not have gotten ever qualified for these mortgages, we're saying, well, the individuals who got these lousy instruments would have qualified for traditional mortgages, number one. But number mm-hmm. two, it is absolutely imperative that they have access to uh, a wealth creation, to creating uh, net worth, just to be able to function in an independent way in a 21st century economy. Mm. Wow, that is so true. 
Well, and, and you know, I, I'm really excited about this now. Well, good. Yeah. I'm glad. Uh, it's it's important that uh, we have uh, thought leaders like yourself excited about it because that that will make the difference. And um, I, I look forward to having um, more of the members on the show and us being able to um, sort of get the word out as much as possible and um, be able to really focus attention on this because um, we really need people to participate um, and get involved and hear for yourself. That's the most important thing is um, you can't rely on media to, to transfer this message. You have to go from what you've experienced to hearing some solutions and, and be a part of the solution by telling your story and giving people details of how this thing can be outlined and fixed. Um, everyone has um, something to contribute, and people really need to focus on this and, and think about how they themselves can play a part in their role. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's beautifully expressed, and that's what we hope to achieve. We want that sense of personal empowerment and collaboration because that's what will ensure a positive outcome to, uh, for this process. Mm. Oh, wow. That's great. And, um, again, um, is there anything else on the horizon for you um, other than this project that you wanted to talk with us about? Well, this is pretty all-consuming, so that's what has my attention right now for July 27th. Uh, oh, okay. For this Very gathering, good. and then we're going to, as I say, uh, from there, work towards having a full, a fulsome white paper on no later than October 19th, 2010. And who are some of the people that you need to act on this process once you've gotten the white paper? You have some ideas of some things that might work or have worked in the past that we just need to put more focus and attention on. So what will be the next step after that? Well, I think uh, um, clearly, obviously, the banking community uh, need, we welcome their, you know, attention and cooperation. But I also believe the uh, administration, the White House, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Treasury, HUD, and the like, to have them also... You know, I think to have all of the key stakeholders to say, okay, if, all, if, if, if the banking community, the administration, particularly including Treasury, along with the Congress, as well as the uh, advocacy community that I outlined, such as Urban League and La Raza, if they're all on the same page about the four or five top major things we could do to, to make a difference, then we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Because it's both government policy that's legislative as well as executive. Uh, as well as uh, the banking community feeling, okay, we're all on the same page. You know, when I do, when Bank of America or Citibank or Wells Fargo agrees to do something, they also believe they're doing something that everybody kind of applauds, that everybody agrees is the something they ought to do. And that's the great advantage of everybody sort of trying to get, you know, close ranks around four or five very particular uh, uh, recommendations. That that's the power of it uh, to have that agreement on it. So we so we really need an answer to your question of support of all of those stakeholders to right. agree on four or five things. We play the role of sort of shepherding everyone to raise the issues together, try to mm -hmm. help make certain we you know uh, capture the essence of all of the brainstorming that occurs, and then memorialize it in a white paper. But in our role of convener, hopefully we'll also the role of encouraging collaboration. That collaboration is what will ensure a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. 
that that collaboration will ensure a positive outcome because that lets all of the bankers, the policymakers, everybody know this is where everybody everybody agrees on this. This is where everybody's head is on this right now. Awesome. Well, um, I'm going to do my best to do whatever I can do. And if you have any ideas on what I can do to sort of support this effort, please let me know. And um, I will just, you know, see what I can do to, to put in my fair share. Um, again, I, I can't imagine what could be more important right now because, again, we won't ever get out of this stall until we have somehow given a boost to our economy. And without the banks lending and without people having access to home loans in order to fund um, their own businesses and also just being able to build wealth, we we really won't go anywhere. And it's just, it's just a shocking state that we've been in for so long. I think a, a lot of us have forgotten just how bad things are. We, we no longer want to think about it. We've heard and uh, are complacent, but it affects us all. So no, really I... I yeah, I agree that uh, we've heard the news so much and the story has been so consistent and it's so staggering that people tune it out, but it can't be tuned out because the implications are too severe. We have to address this issue. We have to pay attention to it and we have to identify ways to mitigate against the worst case scenario and we can do it we can do it it's not that it's not within our power to do and that's the importance of everybody coming together because we can do it absolutely you know i um i did a commentary <clears throat> some time ago and um it was in the midst of a lot of the um the town hall meetings and some of the um of the um, hostility that was there at a forum which should have been a discussion which people should have come together and brought ideas, not emotions. And um, the fact of the matter is, is after 9-11, I, I couldn't imagine being more prouder than the American people with the way we had pulled together and everyone was on one accord. And this is another crisis that we can all get through together if we can all focus and understand its full impact and really look at solutions and try to, to push our way forward and, and move through this thing. Because if we don't, if they're already talking now that we may have a, a double-dip recession, depression, who knows what we were in. Those are just semantics. But um, we will continue to go on the same path until something changes. I, uh, it is, uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there is some feeling in many circles that we may be looking at a, a W-type recession rather than a V-type recession, mm. and there may be a second dip. Uh, we all pray that that's not the case. Um, but one way or the other, we are a long ways away from moving beyond the crisis. Uh, and so it's tough. You know, So it's tough. Um, you know, one thing, when I mentioned the July 27th event, I should have said it's in the Capitol Building Room uh, H-137. So it's Capitol Building House Room H-137, and that's 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Now, is there anything that people need to do ahead of time? Is there pre-registration, or can they just come well, in with yeah. their... Well, they can. They can come in, but we would. it would be better, uh, I think, uh, if they contacted our office at 202-204-2580. 
So you can just get in with um, your name yeah, on a list right. and yeah, that's an right. ID. Okay. That's correct. That's great. And um, we, we want to encourage everyone who can make it out that day. Um, and um, it's from 9 to 5, right in the middle of the day. Yeah, nine to, that's right, 9 to 5.30 we, uh, that day. And uh, we'll begin with uh, opening remarks by uh, Mark Morial, and we hope Janet Marguerite of La Rosa and one of the members of Congress. Uh, so, uh, and then we'll move in from there on just sort of uh, drilling down on the what of the problem and then drilling down on the reasons for the problem, then to look at what the, uh, the businesses associated with the problem and to look at what is working and then look at where we go from here. And we don't want to just spend all day fussing and whining. We want to spend the day trying <laughs> to really identify what works and how mm-hmm. we and how we make things work to to the to the betterment of our communities. Right, and this is something that does tend to happen. You you get involved in something, and you spend too much time with hearing the problem without trying to to look at ways to resolve the issues that are at hand. And um, so this is this will be a great opportunity to actually hear some solutions along with the problems that we're facing today. That's right. We don't. We don't want to. We don't want waste people's time. Everybody has enough problems of their own. We don't want them to come up on the hill to just hear us tell them what they already knew. We mm-hmm. want to spend our time, you know, trying to focus on to identify the problem so that we really have a clear understanding of the problem. Because in part, there are a lot of false assumptions out there, a lot of uh, mis misinterpretations of this problem, a suggestion that just people who were, who were not qualified to secure mortgages, uh, that the, these people, particularly African Americans, Hispanic Americans, mm-hmm. are the cause of this meltdown. And and that's just not the case. Yeah, and you hear it over and over again. It's the misinformation that makes you want to not think of it as a problem that affects most Americans, but a problem that affects just some people who were somehow um, risk takers and were negligent in in the way they went about purchasing homes. Absolutely, and that's just not the case. I mean, there are – so, you know, that's part of what we want to do. We want to quantify really what, what is the problem and then to drill down and identify the source of the problem and then from there identify what's working and how to move beyond this um, so that it's purposeful, that we aren't, so it's not whining, but hopefully a, a clarification uh, of the issues, but more particularly uh, the beginning of, of collaboration around the solutions. And, 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 and I'm very hopeful and optimistic about our ability to achieve that collaboration around the solutions because the stakes are too high to do otherwise. Well, I have to take a quick break. Can you hang in there with us sure, for a bit? Sure, I can. For a couple minutes. And what about you, Erica? Sure, no problem. Okay, we'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. I want to take a quick minute to talk to you about Young Lives DC 34. Young Lives is a unique, cutting-edge, nonprofit Christian organization designed to empower and equip pregnant and parenting teen moms to become productive citizens in the community, a program that partners teens and mature Christian women to provide teen girls in crisis with timely encouragement, guidance, and ongoing support. Through the power of presence, 
Kids' and teens' lives are dramatically impacted when caring adults come alongside them, sharing God's love. Because someone believes in them, they begin to see that their lives have great worth, meaning, and purpose. This is just the first step in a lifelong journey. The choices they make today, based on God's love for them, will impact their future decisions, the careers they choose, the marriages they form, and the families they raise. And all of this can be traced back to the time when a young life leader reached out and entered their world. For more information or to get involved, check out their webpage at www.younglives.younglife.org. Or if you're in the D.C. metropolitan area, call 202-399-7017. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I just wanted to let you know that during the next few months, Healthy Kinder Incorporated will be running its Give 5 campaign to raise money for childhood obesity prevention programs throughout the metropolitan area. Please visit the Give 5 campaign page on the website today at HealthyKinderKids.org to learn more about how you can make a significant difference in the lives of our children. Please share this message with your friends and family members to support this very important and worthy cause. Even their children can benefit from the Healthy Kinder programs. We encourage you to contact your congressperson and state representatives and ask them to support President Obama's health care reform plan. Prevention is key to the survival of our future generation. And thank you for taking time out of your busy day for a measure of truth. And we're back. I was um, just mentioning, um, I just checked offline with Sharon Pratt and uh, found out that both of these young ladies are actually sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Sisters in the sorority. Oh, That's geez, right. Laura Pratt? Yes, indeed. I, I, I would go ski week. <laughs> yes, yes, we were allowed to do that still. <laughs> wow, wow. Now, now this is interesting because um, this is one of the reasons why I asked Erica about the um, her school because I, I didn't realize they actually had um, a chapter in the military academy. Well, they actually do not have a chapter at the military academy. We... My um, line, I I don't think we're supposed to say line anymore, but our group of (laughs) initiates were brought in in the spring of 1998 as undergraduates through a graduate chapter. We were kind of a unique, first-of-our-kind sort of um, group to come into the sorority. We were approved by our regional director to to be initiated into a chapter in Peekskill, New York. So... um, it was a unique situation, but a wonderful experience. And we've had, um, I think we have had six lines come through the, the military academy, separate, completely separate from the academy. Really? But in our very limited free time, um, we were able to do that over. So, so how many came? How many were in your line? There were eight of us on my line. Well, I see. That's great. The elegant eight. Yes. That was us. <laughs> I like I'm a that. member of the Alpha chapter, the Howard Are University you? chapter, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And what year did you come through? I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> too, far, uh, too, too long ago. Well, that's historic. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, and, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing to me because um, I, I'm – 
you know, a big fan of technology and um, this new craze of social networking and all of that kind of, you know, reflects some other things that have been going on for a while and building networks and things like that. And now um, this was something that I've heard of for many, many years with the young ladies that I knew of that were AKAs. And they talked about just the, the um, not only the sisterhood, but the network in itself it attaches you to to be able to, you know, go out there and become a very, very successful person in your career. Now, uh, well, the AKA network is quite is powerful. I mean, I've been involved with uh, politics, lots of organizations over many, many years, and I'd have to say that when I'd go someplace to speak, each and every venue where I've ever almost spoken. There's always a group of AKAs waiting for me when I get off that plane. It's and you know that is so warm, and so wonderful to have that support group wherever you go. Uh, and some places will seem pretty remote, but there they were, the AKAs. <laughs> and it's, so it's it, it's really quite wonderful. Wow. Now, um, Erica, did you actually um, have any help or support through AKAs in, as far as your White House fellowship? Because I, I heard you talk a lot about some of your mentors that you had and some of the generals and things like that, but did they play a role in that as well? Well, I, I tell you, I had tremendous support from the sisters in my in my chapter, which is Zeta Chi Omega in Alexandria and Arlington. Um, I had a lot of support. I had a soror in the chapter who was a former White House fellow who was very supportive and um, spoke with me a little bit about her experience. And as a matter of fact, one of the current appointees who is a commissioner for the president on the White House fellows, Dr. Cynthia Hale, is actually a soror. And um, I was able to make that connection with her when I had the chance to meet her over finals weekend. So that was you know, it's a the tie that binds. I mean, it's it's a wonderful connection that you can make, and it doesn't matter where you are. You see that pink and green, and you know that you are among friends. So it's it's a wonderful fellowship. Uh, I quite agree. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know, and so it's they funny. can have Facebook and all all kinds of things, which are wonderful. But the, that pink and green is pretty solid. That's right. That's right. No matter right. where you go. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Now, um, it's interesting because um, when I when I loaded the show, um, generally most listeners find it either by um, a link to a page of some sort or also by keyword searches. And when I put in AK into the keyword search for this show, I already know that it's just going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. sure that's true. I'm sure Absolutely. that's true. Absolutely. And um, I I can't actually remember, um, Sharon Pratt, where I saw that that you were an AKA, but it was somewhere in your information. And um, are you currently involved with them now? And um, explain to us a little bit about the the ongoing relationship, even after you've um, succeeded in your career and, you know, reached your your pinnacle, exactly what your affiliation is with these um, types of chapters. Well, I haven't been uh, as active, uh, but I need to get as active again. Uh, we will reclaim you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, when I pledged years ago at Howard University, and uh, then became active, uh, and my daughters, both of my daughters, pledged uh, uh, AKA 
uh, one in California and the other one up in uh, Rhode Island. Uh, so, um, uh, and then uh, over the years, as I said, when I'd go to speaking engagements or wherever I'd go uh, to visit, uh, always there would be a delegation of AKAs there to receive me. Uh, and so it has uh, really been a part of my life for for a very long time. I think I would say the same. I'm, I'm a legacy. Both of my grandmothers and my mom are AKAs. And so I, I could be an AKA or nothing, basically, and I, I had, no, had no choice. But, of course, there was only one choice for me anyway. But it's one thing that I find that's interesting about our sorority versus many of the other sororities that you'll hear about in the, the broader. Okay, movement. okay, hold on. Don't start any stuff. No, 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 well, go I'm ahead. not talking about, no, I'm talking about, I mean, you know, Delta Sigma State as well, but I mean, like, things like, you know, the the sororities that are strictly for undergrads. Um, uh-huh. Our sororities that go on beyond the undergraduate years and into the graduate years that many of the other sororities don't. Like, I mean, Delta Sigma Theta does, of course, as well, but um, it's more about community service once you get out of out of college. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the main focus of the active chapters today. I know our chapter and, and many of the others, um, the whole, I mean, that's that's our motto is service to all mankind. And that's what we do um, is go out into the communities that, in, in which we live and serve. Um, so that's what makes it more than just kind of a, it's not, you know, people think, oh, you're in a sorority and you're long since out of college. But it's it becomes really a, a very active community service organization once you get out of the undergrad years. So it's an and, and Right. And, of course, I, I, I won't say, but I have a sister who belongs to a different sorority. <laughs> but... <laughs> but um, uh, the great thing, again, is the rich network it provides, uh, and that matters. Uh, it's a rich network of, of, of uh, women who have a commitment to public service uh, that transcends any experience uh, in school, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a life-lasting experience, so it's, uh, it is special. And um, just to to give a broad statement about sororities without specifically talking about your particular one, but talk to young women about, you know, the benefits of that and and what it really means and what the purpose is of these sororities and their affiliation with them and how they can um, benefit their career path. Well, um, you know, I think uh, it's a a lesson in – about life when you won just the pledging process, I think. Uh, you really learn a lot about uh, pe- human nature. Uh, you learn a lot about how what it takes to uh, forge alliances, and, and, and they, they deliberately create a rather challenging environment, but I think all of that helps you mature as a human being. Uh, and it and because it is challenging, not unlike what one goes through with a military academy as well, uh, it, it creates a deeper bond uh, in terms of the relationships. Um, and because you are also required to learn something about your history uh, as a community of people, as a community of women, uh, and, and you're instilled with a sense of set of principles in terms of service to others. So all of these things, uh, are create um, pillars that will sustain you in life, um, and and I think that's what's so uh, valuable about a sorority. 
I would completely agree with that. I think that in addition to that, it gives you a sense of teamwork. It gives you a sense of leadership in many regards. Um, there's there's also a sense of followership. Um, obviously, throughout the the theme and thread of of service is prevailing, um, and that that's something that you know permeates all aspects of life. Kind of understanding the concept of giving of yourself to serve others. Um, I think that's a lesson that everyone should learn in, in some way or another. So the sorority and that sisterhood. And, and really, um, as, as Sora Sharon mentioned, as far as um, the network and really when you see pink and green across the room or, you know, you see a, an AKA tag, you're going to let her in. <laughs> or, you you know, just kind of being friendly and having that, um, you know, that smile and kindness. Um, it's just something else that brings brings women together and it's it's a wonderful thing and you know what i found too is um it's not that you would just treat your own sisters that way you sort of treat right. other women the same way as well and absolutely it's just, absolutely it's yeah it's really just the the acknowledgement of of another sister no matter what color she's wearing you know and and to take it what you've learned from your individual sorority that pillar as as or sharon said of service and um, mutual respect, that you know that carries out into all all aspects of your life. So that's that's really something that's invaluable. Yeah, those are fond memories too. I mean, uh, just again building that bond on, with challenging circumstances. But you get to know one another in those challenging circumstances. A lot of people handle the challenge well. A lot of people kind of fold when they're when they're in that kind of pressured social situation. And so it teaches you how to support your sisters, uh, who you can count on in a tough situation, who you can't count on. All of that is good to learn and to know. Um, and so um, it's just sort of quite unique, I think, in terms of, uh, of being a special. The process is special by which you become a member, and therefore it's special in terms of the relationship moving beyond. And I believe we've got a caller. Let's check and see who we've got calling in. Um, you're on with the measure of truth. Give us your name and where you're calling from. Uh, yes, this is B Stone. I'm calling from Illinois. And did you have a comment? Yes, actually, I did have a question uh, regarding your host. Both of them have a very good background, and uh, I was I'm doing a community program that I'm trying to put together now. And as far as working with uh, the AKA chapters. Uh, I would love to have somebody represented to uh, basically go into our community and let our, you know, younger high school kids who have graduated and still just hanging out on the streets and whatnot. If they, if, is there some kind of way we can contact the chapter and see if they have the time or the resources to come down and talk to a group of kids, or how would how would we go about doing that, or if do you guys have some kind of program already set up to do that? Um, you can go to depending on where you live, you can go to the National Headquarters website for Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, which ooh, you can Google that, but I believe it's aka1908.org. Um, and if you go to that website, you can put, you can find um, their open pages for, for the public to look at to find chapters in your particular area. And you can, each one will have contact information. You can contact the chapter for your particular area. And we have... Um, platforms for many different things, whether it's 
families or economics or health and mental health and physical health. Um, we have five different platforms, so there are definitely platforms focused on family and youth. So um, I would suggest going to the, the main website and then finding what your local chapter is and then reaching out to them. And I'm sure they would be very welcoming and happy to work with you to speak with um, children in your community. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you for calling. Yes, and, um, you know, it, it's interesting enough, um, <laughs> I have my own personal story. I, I had an opportunity to, to travel abroad, and um, I was in England, and I, uh, I lived with a Kappa for a little while, and um, really didn't know how that was all going to work out. But I, I've never really bonded and, be you know, became such close friends with someone I've just met before. I mean, this guy was just amazing. His name is James Perkins. I've got to put it out there. And uh, he really took care of me and gave me a totally different idea and concept of what these um, Greek organizations were all about because a lot of us really just don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, the Greek organizations, they always have these problems with people being, you know, having problems about uh, the getting kicked off campus because of this or that and the other. And so people have uh you know, maybe a rather skewed perception of what it's all about. Uh, but there's a reason uh, that you have, you know, generation after generation gets involved with it. And it's really because, uh, again, it expands your horizons. You get to learn a lot more about human nature and how to build relationships. Uh, you learn more about your history as a community of people. Uh, it, it, it helps you to mature and grow because, Few, few, few of us will have a circumstance where you'll get that sort of uh, uh, pledging process other than those who do go to military academies. They have it as well. Uh, but that's a unique experience. But at least, you know, you have a situation where you have to sort of bond if you are to really be effective and survive the challenge. Uh, and it's sort of a simulated process, obviously, for a social for a Greek organization, but it just creates a very rich, deep bond and and and, and ties that again will last you a lifetime. Uh, and there are a few things you can do that will reap such rich rewards as this. <laughs> Absolutely, and that, that I can believe. And, and again, it's really tied around uh, a, a new focus on service, serving your community, and having a, a certain I guess um, pride about what you're doing and understanding that there's a responsibility for you to give back as well and having an organized structure out there that you can participate and plug back into your community whenever you'd like and, um, and help out. And this is something I encourage people to do quite often. Find a way to connect um, in any way you can um, by volunteering, by um, just trying to find an organization at a, a grassroots level that's out there making an impact and touching the lives of people. Uh, I agree. And because you also are forced to learn something about your history and people who did, uh, who provided that service in much more difficult circumstances and difficult times, that instills a sense of pride in you and a sense of purpose in you. And that's another thing that I really like about it. I would never maybe have learned that history had it not been for my sorority. And I would rarely learn the history of African-American women possibly were it not for my sorority. Uh, it's really highlighted in a way uh, that 
I would might not otherwise have reason to 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 learn about, and that's also very powerful. I agree. I agree completely. Did you have anything to add to that, Erica? Um, I would just I would dovetail right off of what um, Sora Sharon just said by saying that um, it really. I mean, there there are a lot of different ways um, to to give to your community. Greek organizations are just one mechanism. Um, and it's been a great one for me, um, allowing us to really go out into the communities. We do a lot of things with with children in Alexandria and Arlington, as well as um, we had a huge census census event in conjunction with the city of Alexandria and Arlington. So we we have kind of the community service as far as youth and families, and then the civic side of things. We're really trying to encourage people to vote, encourage people to do their census, encourage people to be active in their um, in, the, in their community politics and, and um, other civic organizations. So um, that is what kind of my sorority, the sorority has done for me, is to kind of continue to light that fire and stoke that fire that's already there, that, um, that dedication to community service and public service. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been great. But there are obviously, and as you said, Michael, to encourage others to, to just give back. There's so many different ways to do it, and you don't obviously have to be in a Greek letter organization to do that. So just the concept um, is what's most important, and then the action, of course. Absolutely, and being accountable to get out there. If you're saying that you want to do something, you know, if you can't find yourself motivated enough to attach yourself to something, it's just another way that someone can remind you of who you are and what you need to be doing. But those of you who can get out there and do it on your own, I encourage you to do that. And there's always something out there for you to to lend a hand to. And uh, even if it's just, um, and I wouldn't say just as if it's something small, but a, a big brother or a big sister organization, you know, you, you got to get out there and um, give something back. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes life, a, it makes life, gives life a lot more meaning. And you almost always you're more enriched by the extending of yourself then you know then anything you may give you you're going to get something back even that's that's quite rich by having that experience wow wow well, we had a great discussion today i i would love to invite you both back at some future day to to talk more about whatever you have going on um and Erica, of course, we we wish you many many blessings and success in your future endeavors as um, a White House fellow, and um, we look forward to hearing back from you as well once you have received your station and you know exactly what you'll be doing, and we'll be looking for you in the news. And if you ever need <laughs> to get your voice out there, um, feel free to call on me. Um, and um, regardless, even if it's at the last minute, I can always give you ten minutes and. Um, and you as well, Sharon Pratt, um, if you ever need to um, connect with the people, um, please keep me in mind, and um, we will always invite you back at any given time. Well, it's been a pleasure to be a part of it, and, and uh, Erica, good to make your acquaintance as well. And but the I'm pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, and thanks for this opportunity, Michael. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank Michael, you. And, Michael, you continue to do the great work you're doing. You are a wonderful voice for our community. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Well, special thanks to producer Donna Hardiman and also Mondo Webb for helping us put this all together. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. But before you go, 
here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you. Love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 3:31. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 